Boys and girls, where does Jesus meet with his people? Do you remember from last week? We've been considering some of those amazing appearances of the Lord Jesus. But last week, we specifically focused on an appearance by his divine appointed appointment. Jesus had made an appointment with his disciples and with many of his followers. And we saw how they all came to that appointed place, appointed by him. And they were not disappointed because they met the risen Christ, or we should say the risen Christ met them. And he drew near to them. And he spoke to them. And he comforted them. And as I pointed out last week, that which Christ did in very special ways, the risen Christ continues to do Lord's Day after Lord's Day. That's why being in the house of God is not just a tradition, it's not just a wonderful custom. No, it's divinely appointed. The ministry of the gospel is divinely appointed by the risen Christ. And it's especially when his people gather in the house of God for corporate worship that the risen Christ continues to reveal himself. The risen Christ continues to draw near to us and to speak to us. And so this morning we want to continue to hear what Jesus had to say at that special appearance, which was the crowning point of all his appearances may have very well been the very last appearance before he ascended into the heavens. Because it was at this moment, it was at that occasion, that he not only comforted his disciples and many of those followers, as we pointed out last week, that almost all commentators unanimously agree that this was the time where Christ appeared to the 500 in Galilee. Not only did he want to comfort them, But this was a seminal moment. This was a a critical juncture in redemption history. Because here we're standing on the threshold of the New Covenant administration. The New Testament administration of the covenant of grace. Because until this moment, that administration had been limited to one nation, to one people the people of Israel. But the moment has now arrived where those boundaries will be broken and where the gospel will now go forth to the very ends of the world. And so with God's help, we're going to focus on that this morning. So let's read again verses 18 through 20. 18 through 20 of Matthew 28. And there we read God's word and our text. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And so here we have the the great commission given to the church. So what that means, boys and girls, 
is that Jesus simply told his disciple, this is what you must do in my name. This is what I am commanding you to do in my name. I'm giving you a job. Your job, your task, your commission will be to go out into the world. So the essence of that commission is, namely, that they must go and teach all nations. And so we have to do a little bit of grammar here. Because sometimes this text is misinterpreted. So what we have here is what we have, and some of our older ones, certainly in high school, would be able to understand that. We have a main clause. The main clause, the main sentence is this. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. That's the main clause. And then we have what we call two subordinate clauses who support the main clause. And that's the method the method of the Great Commission. So the essence of the Great Commission, as we will see, is to go and teach or disciple all the nations. That's the essence of it. The method is, how do we do this? What does that discipling look like? Well, we have to baptize in the name of the triune God, and we have to instruct or teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That's the method of the Great Commission. And then finally, the encouragement in this commission. And lo, and behold, and lo here means pay attention. Lo, I am, I who am sending you, I who am calling you, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So the great commission to the church given by Christ, the essence of it, discipling, The method of it, baptizing and instructing, and the encouragement, namely, that he promises to be with his church until the end of the age, until the end of the world, until he returns again. So verse 19, we have the word, therefore. And that's always an important word in our language, but especially in Scripture, the word therefore is important. And so again, boys and girls, maybe you can remember this. When the Bible says therefore, we have to ask ourselves, wherefore is the therefore, therefore? Wherefore is the therefore, therefore? So what is Christ referring to, therefore? Well, he's referring, of course, to those wonderful words that we briefly considered last week when he said, when he draws near to them, when he comforts them and says, all power, all authority, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. We need to understand again, congregation, that Christ is speaking here as the exalted, glorified mediator. Not only is Christ our mediatorial prophet and our mediatorial high priest, but here he reveals himself as our mediatorial king. Because obviously, as I explained last week, as the second person in the Trinity, as the Son of God who is very God of very God, equal to the Father, he has always had all power in the universe. Because Paul tells us in Colossians 1 that all things were made by him and all things were made for him. So in that sense, he has always had all power. 
But here Christ is speaking as mediator. He is speaking as the Christ. And just like he was given the power to do his mediatorial work as our high priest, as he was sustained by his divine nature to engage in that work which he could have never done were it not for the fact that he was upheld by his divine nature. So in his exaltation, it is the second Adam who is now the glorified second Adam, the man Christ Jesus, who upheld by his divine nature, now is entrusted by his Father with the government of the entire universe. So Christ is saying here that his Father, as a reward upon his finished work, has entrusted to him all authority in heaven and on earth. So that the Apostle Peter writes that all powers and all authorities are subject unto him. Oh, this was his Father's gift. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. Think of Psalm 89, verse 19. I have laid help upon one that is mighty. And here Jesus reveals himself as the mighty one of God, as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Isaiah 9, verse 6. Isaiah prophesies that the government... The government of the universe shall be upon his shoulder. Of course, that shoulder is a reference to his humanity, his glorified humanity. And the reason he was able to bear that responsibility, to bear the weight of that authority, is because he is very God and very man. Also in his exaltation, his divine nature enables him to carry out that which his father entrusted to him. When the angel appeared to Mary to announce to her that she would be the mother of the Messiah, what did the angel say? The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And then the wonderful words of Psalm 2, Psalm 2 verse 8. You know that Psalm 2 is that amazing psalm where we have this extraordinary Biblical portrayal of what is really going on in this world. It begins by focusing on what goes on here below. How the ungodly, how the nations of the world, as it were, are conspiring against God's anointed. But then we are lifted above that when we see how God has set his king. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And then this marvelous statement that the father makes about his son, I shall give thee, he says to his son, I shall give thee the heathen, the nations of the world for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And you see, that's what drives history, congregation. That's the reason the world still spins. Because the Father has given to His Son as the reward upon His mediatorial work, He has given to Him all power in heaven and earth so that even the uttermost parts of the earth would be His possession. And Jesus knew that. Even before He was crucified, He already anticipated this moment 
when in his high priestly prayer he said in John 17 verse 2, thou hast given him power over all flesh. That's so beautiful, congregation. Power over all flesh. For what purpose? That he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And that flesh that he's talking about is wicked flesh, sinful flesh, hostile flesh, ungodly flesh, the flesh that naturally rebels against God, that flesh which has no use for God. But Jesus knew that the Father would give him power over all flesh. And that power would be so extraordinary that the result would be that sinners who by nature are hostile to God, hostile to his word, that sinners are made willing in the day of his power. And if by the grace of God you may be a child of God, you are the living proof of that power. It is Christ who exercised that power when he quickened you, when he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, when he made you a new creation. That's why he exercises that power. What's so encouraging for the disciples here? Think of this. These 11 men, simple, uneducated men, fishermen, no academic training, none of this. And Christ is, is sending them into the world, into this Gentile world. And for Jewish men to hear that command was a very intimidating command. The Jews actually were inclined to look down upon the Gentiles. Later, Peter would need a special vision from heaven to persuade him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were those nations that surrounded Israel, those nations that were hostile to Israel. And now Jesus tells them, you must go to those Gentiles. You must now go into that hostile world in my name, and you must proclaim my name to those very nations. That's why before he gives them that commission, that's why he first encourages them by focusing on who he is. And this is as if he is saying to the disciples, to, his, to all that were gathered there, and to us today, remember, yes, I'm calling you today, he is calling us today. I am calling you to go into that hostile world. I'm calling you to bring my gospel to men and women who are not waiting for it, who have no desire for it. But remember who I am. Therefore, remember, consider that all power, all power is given unto heaven and me. Remember that the world to which I'm sending you, that world is my domain. That world is where I rule. Even though you may not always observe it, even though it may seem at times as if the ungodly have the upper hand, and we're sometimes inclined to think that today, where it appears almost as if the ungodly are winning the battle, we need to be reminded that our Lord Jesus Christ is the exalted King of Kings, that he's in absolute control over all that's happening in this ungodly world of ours. He is the one who is ruling and reigning. 
in spite of, of the conspiracy of the ungodly that is expressed to us in the opening verses of Psalm 2. They are conspiring together. That's it. The ungodly are in a conspiracy, conspiring against God's anointed. But the comfort of Psalm 2 is that that conspiracy will fail, and it has failed until this day, congregation. And so the therefore is Christ's encouragement. That's what Peter meant. I, I already alluded to it. Let me read the exact passage. You can write it down if you want to. 1 Peter 3.22. What a beautiful verse. 1 Peter 3.22. Who is gone into heaven, Peter says, and is on the right hand of God. Angels, it also means devils, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So what Christ is saying to his disciples and to us, he says, do not be concerned about the outcome. I am the warranty of my own commission. I guarantee the outcome. I guarantee that your ministry will not be in vain. That means congregation is difficult and as daunting as obedience to this commission can be, even in our own nation. But Christ does not send his people on a fool's errand. No, he's promising them, go and obey me. Do my bidding, but never lose sight of who I am. As you engage in the impossible task of preaching the gospel to the ungodly, to a hostile world, remember that all power in heaven and on earth is given unto me. The fact that the Lord Jesus uses the word nations here is highly significant congregation. This is what we call covenant language. Do you realize that with that one word nations, Christ literally summarizes the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament was moving towards this moment That's why there already are numerous references in the Psalms and in the prophets that the day would come, that the Gentiles would hear the word of God, that the Gentiles would come to conversion. And of course, in Old Testament history, we see a sprinkling of conversions already. But ultimately, all of redemption history in the Old Testament is all moving towards this moment. Because that's what Christ told Abraham. We know from Acts 7, when Stephen stands before the Sanhedrin, he says, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. And who is that God of glory? That, of course, is Christ before the pre-incarnate Christ. Congregation, always remember, and I I will reinforce this over and over again. Whenever we read of God appearing to men, Whenever we read of God speaking to men in the Old Testament, it is always in the person of God's Son. God's Son, it is in the Son that God interacts with man. It is in His Son that God reveals Himself to man. So all those occurrences in the Old Testament of God meeting with men, revealing Himself to men, they are all pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is Christ who appears to our father Abraham, Stephen says in Acts 7. 
And then in Galatians 3, we're told that he preached the gospel to Abraham. And what did that gospel sound like? That gospel sounded like, very simple, God said, Christ said to Abraham, in you will all families of the earth be blessed. That's the gospel. That is good news. Why is that good news? Well, who were those families that God was talking about? Who were those nations? It's interesting when you read the book of Genesis, and you can search this out yourself, that promise is repeated to Jacob, it's repeated to Isaac. Sometimes the word nations is used, sometimes the word families is used. They're used interchangeably, because really what a nation is, it's a large family. It's a large ethnic family. And the nations that Christ was talking to Abraham about were the nations that are listed in Genesis 10. Genesis 10, there we have the families of the three sons of Noah and all of their descendants. And what do we read in Genesis 11, the chapter before Genesis 12? What did those nations do? They conspired against God under the leadership of this wicked king Nimrod. They built a tower as a testimony to their own strength and power as a, as a brazen statement that they, that they were intent on disregarding the Word of God. And then we see how God disperses the descendants of Noah. And all of a sudden, we have new nations are coming into existence who have a language in common. God disperses the seed of Noah to the very ends of the world. And what those nations deserved was God's judgment. They deserved God's curse. And now God says, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless those nations. Through you, you will be my chosen instrument through whom those nations that rebel against me those nations that I had to disperse because of their rebellion against me, you will be the means through which I will be able to bless those nations, to bless all the families of the earth. And that's really the focus of John 3, verse 16. God so loved the world. We could say God so loved the nations of the world, the nations of the ungodly, Jews and Gentiles, that whosoever believed in his Son would not perish, but have eternal life. You see, that's the ultimate outcome. When it's all said and done, God will have saved the nations of the world, representatively, but the nations of the world. Psalm 22, verse 7, we just sang it together. All the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. Isaiah 52, verse 10, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And why do you think we are here? How did that happen? That we are here. That we and our children are here in the house of God, hearing the Word of God. It's because this commission that Christ gives to His disciples and to us that has been obeyed throughout the ages. And it continues to be obeyed. 
And God uses the ministry of the gospel. He uses his people to go out into the world and to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in order that that foundational promise that he made to Abraham, that that promise would be fulfilled. Now, who is speaking here? The exalted Christ, yes, but he himself is the living word of God. The one who is speaking here is the author of the entire Old Testament. And he summarizes the entire body of truth of the Old Testament in this one key word. Go and teach all the nations. What's very remarkable that he chooses the word discipling. It's a little bit misleading in English. We have the word teach twice, but they are two distinctly different words in Greek. So the main clause, the main verb is discipling. That's the main clause. Go ye therefore and disciple all nations. That's the main clause. That's the main verb. And then the second time teaching is used, it's the Greek word didasko. We we derive the word didactic from it. Go and instruct them. So you must disciple the nations, and you must baptize the nations, and you must instruct the nations. That's what Christ is saying here. So why did Christ use the word discipling? To make it crystal clear that that must be the goal of ministry. The goal of ministry is not merely to proclaim the gospel, but to make sure that those who believe the gospel are instructed to become followers of the Christ in whom they believe. So the goal of redemption, congregation, is discipleship. Christ did not say to his disciples, go and convert the nations. He did not say, go and make believers out of the nations. No, he said, go and disciple the nations. And so what Christ was simply articulating here is something we need to grasp, is that coming to Christ and becoming like Christ are inseparably connected. And the very evidence, you see, the very evidence of the saving work of the Holy Spirit is not only that sinners come to Christ, but they also become like Christ. So in English, that's easy to remember. Also for you boys and girls, it's like a play on words. So let me say it again. Those who come to Christ become like Christ, inseparably connected, you see. And if there, is no, if there is not this becoming like Christ, if there is not a life in which we see evidences of, of, of obedience to Christ, then the evidence, the only reliable biblical evidence of the saving work of the Holy Spirit is lacking. In other words, when we preach the biblical Christ, we not only preach him as Savior, but also as Lord. He is the Savior and he is the Lord of his people. Or to use two theological terms, we have to make sure that when we preach the gospel, that we never separate justification and sanctification. Those two belong inseparably together. That's why Jesus profoundly uses the word discipling. 
In other words, the purpose of preaching the gospel to nations is not to provide them a pathway to heaven. Oh, I don't want to be misunderstood. Heaven, the new heaven and new earth is the future of God's people. But we're not saved for heaven. We're saved to be reconciled to God. We're saved to be restored into His favor. We are saved in order to become the people of God. In other words, when Christ saves us, when He saved you, dear child of God, He saved you so that you would become His disciple. He drew you to Himself by His Spirit in order that by being united to Him, that's what happens, we would also become followers of Him. Because the purpose of our redemption is to bring glory to the very Christ who has redeemed us. And how do we bring glory to the Christ who has redeemed us? We bring glory to Him when we honor Him and His Word, you see, is when we are disciples, when by our walk and life we prove ourselves to be followers of Christ. So discipleship, you see, discipleship, consistent discipleship, is the evidence of true faith. It's the litmus test for every professing believer. Litmus test, what does that mean? Again, the young people that are in high school, I'm sure you've learned about that, but that's a little piece of paper that helps you determine whether a liquid is acid or whether it's alkaline. And if it's acid, it'll turn a certain color. If it's alkaline, it'll turn another color. That's why it's called a litmus test. And so we use that expression. And so when I say that, that discipleship is the litmus test of our Christianity, is that by our discipleship, our following, if by the grace of God we honor the living word by honoring his written word, if by our walk we give evidence that we are followers of the Christ whose name we profess, then that proves that our professional faith is genuine. That's the point Jesus makes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the whole point he makes with the parable of the wise and foolish builders. He said, those that hear my word and do my word are wise builders. Those who hear my word and fail to do my word, they are the foolish builders. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 21, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. John writes in 1 John 2, verse 3 and 4, turn to that passage with me. That's such an important passage. 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4. Then we read this, and hereby, hereby we do know that we know him. Right? That's what a believer claims to know Christ. Hereby do we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. He that says, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's a strong statement. That's why in the very last chapter of the Bible... 
How are believers described? Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments. So true believers are doers of the word. Not to merit salvation, but as a a revelation of the fact that we are really in Christ, you see. When we are in Him, when we are united to Him, that union with Christ will manifest itself in discipleship. And so what Christ is teaching here very profoundly, that as we go forth and preach the gospel, we are to judge people not so much by what they say, We have to judge them by how they live. That will ultimately be the proof in the pudding as to whether their faith is genuine. Go and disciple the nations. Then, of course, the important word, go. Again, there's a remarkable grammatical structure in this verse connecting go and teach. What it means, what Christ meant to say, There is no such thing as discipling the nations without going to the nations. When I command you to teach the nations, that means you need to go to the nations. And why why? Why is that so important? Because sadly, no one is waiting for us to come. No one is waiting for the gospel. The ungodly are not waiting for the gospel. They despise the gospel. And we saw this past Sunday, we, we, there was this awful conference in Boston, and I, I saw this disturbing video clip, on uh, a Twitter video clip, where a young woman literally, at that conference, tore the Bible to shreds, page by page. That's the world into which Christ is sending us. And so sinners are not waiting for the gospel. That's why God did not wait for Adam and Eve to come out of hiding, because they wouldn't have. He went to them. He took the initiative. He sought them out. He called them out of hiding to proclaim the first gospel promised to them. Because in Isaiah 65 verse 1, we have this prophecy about the Gentiles. I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. That's who we are by nature. And that's the story of every believer. Every believer knows. Every child of God knows. That's my story. God has been found by me because he sought me. I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. And that's why Christ is saying to his church, you must be a going church. You must be a church that is on the go. You must go. You must find them in the highways and in the byways. You must go wherever human beings are to be found, you must go with my word. You must actively go. I want you to be proactive in your ministry. You must seek them out. And of course, what's clear from Acts 1 verse 8, that doesn't just mean that we we go to Africa or to Asia. 
and it's wonderful, but in Acts 1, Jesus said, you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So that's, that's the order, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. In Luke 24, Christ said something similar, verses 47, 48, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Beginning at Jerusalem. That means we have to begin as close to home as possible. That means our obligation is to preach the gospel in the Comstock area. That's where God has sovereignly placed us. Yes, we must fully support all of those ministries that are happening at the very ends of the earth, the uttermost parts, but we cannot ignore Jerusalem. So if we translate it in our language today, Christ would say you have to begin in Kalamazoo, and then Kalamazoo County, and then Michigan, and then the Midwest, and then the United States. That's his order. We have to begin as close to home as possible, and from there we move out. That's what we are commanded to do. And then we have to focus on the method of this commission. Now, obviously, I will not be able to finish this today, and I don't have to. I hope to stay for a bit by God's grace. So, um, but let's begin by looking at the method of this commission. Right? So now we're going to look at what we call grammatically the subordinate clauses. They are, again with a fancy word, they are adverbial subordinate clauses. Now, the older ones will know what is the purpose of an adverb. An adverb modifies a verb. And so when we have an adverbial clause, as we have here, that adverbial clause supports the main verb. The main verb is discipling. How do you disciple? You disciple by baptizing, and you disciple by teaching. Again, this very remarkable congregation. So what Christ is saying, as my commissioned servants going out into the world, you must administer the sacrament of baptism wherever you go. Because baptism is the sacrament of incorporation. Baptism is the sacrament whereby a church community is established. So Christ is saying, don't just go out and preach, but you must make, you must make sure that those who believe my word are bound together by means of this sacrament, are brought into this special new community which we call the family or the household of God. It's a congregation. It is here at this moment that Christ institutes the sacrament of baptism. And so New Testament baptism is administered for the first time, as we will see in a few weeks, on the day of Pentecost. That's the very first time that the disciples obey this command that the Savior gives them here just before he ascends. And as, I, as I've explained in the adult class, is that 
The reason, one of the reasons why John's baptism cannot possibly be New Testament baptism is because you cannot have a New Testament sacrament while the Old Testament is still in force. And the Old Testament lasted until the veil was rent. When the veil was rent, that's when God said, this is it. This is the end of the Old Covenant. This is now, this is the end of all the sacrifices. This is the end of all the shedding of blood. Because as some of you no, no doubt have learned also earlier in your life, when we compare the Old and New Testament sacraments, so they are theologically the same. But what separates them is that Passover is a bloody sacrament. The Lord's Supper is an unbloody sacrament. Circumcision is a bloody sacrament, and baptism is an unbloody sacrament. And the reason is very simple. The Old Testament sacraments were looking forward to Christ. They were anticipating what Christ would do. They were anticipating the shedding of His blood. That's why once His blood was shed, that was the end of the Old Testament sacraments. All of that came to an end when God rent the veil, which was symbolic of that whole ministry of blood. And now we have unbloody sacraments. And so Christ, in a very demonstrable way, on the eve of His suffering, makes the transition from the bloody Passover to the unbloody Lord's Supper. And here Christ gives us the command to baptize, replacing the bloody sacrament of circumcision with the unbloody sacrament of baptism. Because circumcision also was the sacrament of incorporation. It was the sign that you belonged to the family and to the household of God. And that's why when you were born into a Jewish family, as a boy, you would be circumcised. Of course, someone might ask, but Pastor, what about the girls? Well, you see, that, that question is answered rather easily. Because circumcision was ultimately not about the boys. Circumcision was a sacrament that could only be administered to boys. But the symbolism of circumcision involved everyone. Because circumcision was God's communication of grace. Circumcision was symbolic of the marvelous work of heart circumcision, which God does when He regenerates us. And so circumcision taught the people of Israel, by nature you are all flesh, but by my grace I will put my knife in that flesh, and I will cut away that flesh, and I will make you a new creature. I will circumcise your heart. And so baptism by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2 is called the circumcision of Christ. It's the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament sacraments. But they both symbolize the same thing. The sacrament of baptism is symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why it is not accidental that the first administration of baptism happens on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out so remarkably. That's why throughout the New Testament, time and again, we see the connection between baptism and between the Holy Spirit. 
So here, Christ is commissioning his church to baptize. And by the way, congregation, this is the only imperative of the New Testament. This is the only place where baptism is commanded. Now, why do I emphasize that? It's because Baptists will say to us today, oh, give us a command. Give us a command to baptize infants. Of course, there is no specific text in the New Testament that says, thou shalt baptize infants. But what's equally true, there is not a single text in the New Testament that says you should baptize believers only. There is no such imperative in the New Testament. This is the only imperative of the New Testament. And so even uh, Mark 16, which we just read, that's not an imperative where it says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, he that believeth not shall be damned. And of course, the issue there is, is faith versus unbelief. Now, the reason baptism is mentioned there is when the apostles would go into this Gentile world, into this hostile world, they, of course, the evidence of Gentiles having believed the gospel, having embraced the gospel, is they would submit to the ordinance of baptism as an affirmation that they embraced the gospel that the apostles preached to them. But the issue in, 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 in Mark 16, verse 15, the, the contrast is between faith and unbelief. He that believes will be saved. He that is damned will not be saved. He that believeth not will be damned. And so the reason I'm saying that, this is the only imperative, this is the only New Testament imperative or command regarding baptizing. And this is where I'm going to have to end today. We'll pick it up when, I, when we continue. Because notice, who are the subjects of baptism? Go and disciple the nations and baptize them, teaching them. In other words, go and baptize the families of the earth. That's what Christ is saying. Christ is using covenantal language. Christ is summarizing the entire Old Testament theology in this one statement. And by the way, if anybody ever asks you, is there a text that supports the baptism of infants? The answer is very simple. The entire Old Testament requires it. The entire Old Testament demands the inclusion of children. The entire Old Testament is our text. Because the entire Old Testament is the foundation of all New Testament Scripture. The New Testament is the final chapter of the Old Testament. And this is so foundational to the theology of the Old Testament that God is the God of the families of Israel, that He is the God of His people and their seed. That is, the disciples had overturned that and said from now on, even though we have a progression of revelation, we have a, a regression of privileges. That's what it would mean. That in the entire Old Testament, it was God's revealed will that children be included, that they are an essential component of the household of God. And something dramatic would have had to happen where God would have said, from now on, that's no longer the case. 
That's why. But baptism was administered for the first time, the day of Pentecost. It was the Holy Spirit who directed Peter, as we said a few weeks ago, to reach back to Genesis 17. And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins, for the promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of redemption is unto you and to your children. He reached back all the way to Genesis 17 and took that same covenant promise that God made to Abraham when he instituted circumcision. And he said to them, this sacrament, this sacrament that I institute here will be my affirmation to you in every generation that I will be a God unto you and to your seed. That's why it's remarkable that at the first administration of baptism in the New Testament, that we have the identical covenant promise that God annexed to the administration of circumcision. And so go ye therefore and teach all nations, disciple them by baptizing them, bringing them into the communion of the saints. Now, granted, and here we're going to end for today, granted, that primarily meant, of course, that all these Gentiles had to hear the gospel first. And that baptism was not administered until they had made a profession of faith. That's true. But we do not ever read of a single instance in the entire New Testament that children of Gentile believers were not baptized until they were adults. That's why the apostles, wherever they went, they baptized households. In other words, if the head of a family, whether the jailer or whether it was Lydia or whether it was Crispus, when the head of a household came to faith, the entire family was incorporated into the household of God. The entire family received the sacrament of baptism. Because that's what the Bible of the apostles demanded. And for the, for the apostles, the Old Testament was their Bible. And they knew from their Bible that if a Gentile came into the community of Israel, not only was he circumcised, but all the members of his household. That's what happened to Abraham. That's why the New Testament, whenever a man came to conversion or the head of a household, without hesitation, they baptized every member of that family and brought the entire family into the household of God. Because God is the God of the families of Israel. And let me conclude by this, and we are going to unpack this in much more detail next time, Lord willing. It's too important. But notice, that's why I emphasize the grammatical structure of this text, is that baptizing and teaching are the two clauses that support the main sentence, the discipling. But notice the order, baptizing and teaching. So what we are doing is conforms to this text. We baptize our children, and then we teach them. That's exactly what the text says. So in other words, this, this, this imperative doesn't address believers or infants. It addresses the sacrament of baptism, a sacrament that is meant for the nations, a sacrament that is meant for the families of the earth. Because that's ultimately God's goal. 
And the next time the Lord willing, I want to emphasize and unpack for you how significant it is that Christ here says you are to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The very first time in Scripture that the three persons are mentioned together and in that order coming out of the very mouth of Christ. But let me just wrap it up now for today. Congregation, I want you to go home realizing that you and I are the beneficiaries of what happened here. We are the beneficiaries of Christ having commissioned his church to go into the world and to proclaim the gospel, to disciple the nations. Oh, the amazing, if we knew, if we knew the amazing sequence of providences that have brought us to this place, that have brought me here, that I'm standing here to proclaim the gospel to you, we would be overwhelmed, would be astonished. Do you realize that from this moment where Christ gives the commission until today, there is an unbroken link of providences that have brought us to this moment? And if any of those links had been missing, I wouldn't be here and you wouldn't be here. Why? Because the Christ who gives us the commission, all power is given unto him in heaven and earth. He has been the one, and he is the one who orchestrates all of history. It's his story. And he orchestrates all of history so that this will be accomplished. And that's why we are so indebted to the sovereign, distinguishing grace of God that has brought us and our children to this moment. And that's what makes us so responsible, precisely because God gave the word to us sovereignly. Throughout the generations, we are now commanded to give that same word to others, to go and to proclaim the gospel, the gospel of salvation. And so we have abundant reason to reflect on this and to say today, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Because this is the God who said to Abraham, in you I will bless all the families of the earth, including our families. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank Thee for the gift of Thy Word. Bless the instruction that we have tried to give to our dear flock this morning, instruction that is so profoundly significant, coming from Thy lips on the eve of Thy ascension, in which Thou didst use such remarkable and precise language to define to us what our sacred calling is in the midst of this fallen world. Oh God, we pray that we personally, and as the congregation, we may be an obedient people, that we may be a going people, that we would feel within our own soul that burden to go and to proclaim the gospel to men and women surrounding us here who are perishing unless they hear that gospel. And so again, bless our congregation, make us a blessing here in the Comstock area, here in the Kalamazoo area.
And bless our evangelism committee. Help us as a congregation to find ways and means to be obedient to this commission. So go with us now as we go homeward. Gather with us again in this evening hour when we may know with certainty that thou hast again appointed such a time for us to hear thy word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.